0: Welcome to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and challenged today as you listen to a message from one of our speakers. Prepare your heart and get ready to receive a word from God today. I'm going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Uh, if you want to grab a Bible, you can, you're not going to offend me if you grab your phone and look up the scripture. You can do that as well. Matthew tw- 26. Matthew 26. Uh, I'm going to start with a story from a few weeks ago while you're getting to that scripture. Uh, I was eating with my family. My son and my daughter-in-law were over for dinner, and we were just talking about normal things, and I can't remember whether it was my son or my daughter-in-law used a phrase that I'm not familiar with, but they used it in such a way that they thought that everybody knew what it was, and they just kept talking about it, and it sort of stopped me in my tracks. They used this phrase, and it was the Sunday scaries. How many of you have ever heard of the Sunday scaries? Raise your hand. A, f- a few of you. Okay. Well, here's, uh, so as they were talking, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. Got to go back. What are the Sunday scaries? And they described what they were, but you can actually look up the definition. This is the definition of the Sunday scaries. They're feelings of anxiety or dread that happened the day before heading back to work. How many of you right now are experiencing the Sunday scaries? Way more of you. As I was thinking about that, because I had never heard about it, and so I did a, a, a couple of searches online. <laughs> uh, LinkedIn, are you guys familiar with LinkedIn? I don't know how scientific they are. Uh, but they did a survey about, not the Sunday scaries, but anxiety on Sunday about your work week ahead of you. And this is what they found. They actually broke it out by generation. 80% of Americans worry about the week ahead on Sundays. That's a lot of us. And look at the generation you're in. Like Gen Z, the younger generation, 94% of Gen Z worry. about th- That's who uses and who's coined the phrase, the Sunday scaries, Gen Z millennials, like all of it. boomers or older, the reason you're at 69% is many of you are retired. And so as you think about Monday, you're like, Monday's amazing. <laughs> it's the best day ever. <laughs> but can you at least appreciate that this is affecting all of us, many of us? In my own life, I, I don't have the Sunday Scaries, but there was a time in my life that I worked for someone for two years. This was many years ago. And I had like the Sunday Scaries on steroids. It wasn't just that I dreaded the next day, the Monday. I was actually deeply sad about it. I can remember replaying in my mind, I have to go back and do this thing again. And I don't want, it just developed this sadness in my life. Now, wouldn't we love to have like rainbows and unicorns, no issues in our life. Wouldn't that be great? You're in the dimes. You got tons of sleep today. You should be awake. Wouldn't that be great if we had no sadness in our lives? The reality is that doesn't always happen. We have events, not just Monday at work, maybe for some of us, but we have events in our lives that create more sadness. Let me give you a couple of Examples. Uh, A few years ago, uh, my mom passed away. She passed away from lung cancer. And the last six months, she lived about an hour away from us. And so the last six months of her life, as I drove back and forth to visit her, it's just a sad season because every time I would visit mom, she would look a little bit worse, not do uh, much activity. Like every time I saw her, she just declined. It was a sad season. Here at church I'm aware of uh, someone who had a family member who made a mistake and that mistake will change the trajectory of their lives likely forever. It's just sad hearing about that story. Or I, I, I'm aware of a friend who just navigated a divorce. I, I'm sad for him and for her and for the kids. It's a, a tragic situation. Or uh, Some of us are dealing with sickness things that don't go away quickly, and that, that, that can bring seasons of sadness in our lives. Now, as Christians, we know, okay, yep, we're all adults, we get life can be hard and bring sadness, but as Christians, we also know that we have a God and he brings promises. We can read about these in scripture. Here's a couple of examples about the promises of God when we're sad. Here's one, Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Well, that's a great promise. Or or Jesus even taught in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He sees us. He comforts us. Or what about this uh, book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible? There's a promise about when Jesus comes back, he will wipe every tear from their eyes There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Isn't that good news? Yeah, let's read this again. When Jesus comes back, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, crying, pain for the old order of things have passed away. That is good news. But I want to submit based on those promises which are amazing we're living in a time and i know it's not just me we're living in a time where things hurt and create sadness yet i know the promises of god and sometimes it feels like we're in the middle of it and i'm asking this raw question think about it what do we do with our sadness because we got stuff in our lives that are creating pain, yet we know the promises of God, but sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm being comforted, and we're not in the book of Revelation yet, so what do I do with my sadness? It's a raw question, we're we're in this series called Raw, where we're exploring the um, emotions of God. We've been in it for a few weeks, and today, I'm exploring the emotion uh, when Jesus was sad in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, aren't you glad you came to church and the title of this morning's talk is Heart Wrenching Sadness? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? That, that's a challenging to- topic to speak about, but I'm sure listen to. My goal this morning is not to put sadness on you, it is to not preach a sad sermon. My goal is this morning. To figure out how Jesus dealt with sadness so that can teach us how to deal with sadness and can help others. Because here's what I think. I think the world is presenting ideas to us that are not super helpful. I'll give you one quick example before we jump into the message. Um, there's a, can I go back to the Sunday Scaries for a minute? There's a a gummy, a CBD gummy, for the Sunday Scaries. If you don't know what CBD gummy is, don't look it up, (laughs) just trust me. If you do know, follow me. There's a CBD gummy called uh, the Sunday Scaries, and it, uh, there's even a tagline for it. If you have the Scaries, take uh, take the gummy, right, whatever it is. It only helps for four hours. Right, the, the, the things that the world is presenting us to deal with our sadness, is not the, there's got to be something better in that. And I don't even, this is sort of a challenge for all of us, but I really felt like pushing in a little deeper, I'm not even sure as a church we're dealing with the sadness of life the best way we can. So my goal is to, to walk through Matthew 26 and sort of dive deeply into how Jesus deals with sadness to help us. Give you some background, Uh, Matthew 26. Obviously, Jesus is towards the end of his ministry. He knows what's going to happen. He has known what will happen for some time. In Matthew 26, uh, verse 1, this is a few days before our main text. He he says this to the disciples. As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Can you just mentally process for a second that Jesus has known for years, months, and days how he was going to die, and it was not going to be anything to look forward to, and he's sad, and we're going to pick up the account, there's a lot of scripture this morning, you guys can handle it, because you love the Bible, Matthew 26, verse 36, we're going to pick up with Jesus in the garden. few more verses. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. In that text, there's a few things that I'm learning about how to deal with sad situations in my life. I think it'll help us, not only in our lives but with others. Before I jump into the two things I have this morning, let's pray. you let pray with me. So God, my hope this morning is not to put sadness on anyone. So will you help, Lord? Open our ears our hearts, our minds, to what you're teaching, God. We want to follow you, your presence, and your will. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here's what I am learning. Jesus' heart-wrenching sadness led to a posture change. You can write that down. Led to a posture change. We're going to get, in a second, to Jesus on his face praying, which was a pretty dramatic posture change. But I wanna unpack the account a little slower than normal because I think it's important. Verse 38 says, then Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus knows in this moment that soon he will be mocked, beaten to almost death, nailed to a cross, and it's gonna be horrific. It it says in the text that it's to the point of death, he's sorrowful to the point of death. Literally that means he is at his end point of sadness. You couldn't pour any more sadness on him. I can't even imagine how you process that level of pain, how you posture yourself to accept that level of sadness. It made me think how I process my sadness. And so I want to walk through three ways. I think we, and I I can actually show you in Scripture the way Jesus processes this sadness. These are not on your handout. You can write them down if you want to, but they're pretty intuitive. The first way we can process sadness is we can process sadness ourselves. We can process it ourselves. This is my go-to way of processing sadness. Any processors in the room? Yes. These are people who, when something comes into your life that's not amazing, you try to grind it out mentally in your own head. You're processing it, thinking about it, trying to carry it yourself. Now, I can see Jesus doing this because he knows for years that he's going to die on a cross, and he's not giving all of the details to everybody. He's processing it himself. It's not a bad way, but it becomes bad if that's the only way we do it. Let me give you an example. About 20 years ago, my wife and I uh, had a daughter, and she lived only for 17 days before she passed away. Tragic moment in our lives. The bigger tragedy in my life beyond that was, for the next year, I tried to process that by myself. And what that led to is loneliness, bitterness, anger, frustration, relationship problems. I didn't do it well. I tried to keep it inside and deal with it myself. Which isn't foreign, right? Many of us try to do this. C.S. Lewis, he's an author, he actually writes this. He says, I've learned now that while those who speak about one's miseries usually hurt, those who keep silence hurt more. It's not bad to process it ourselves, but there's something better. The other way to process sadness is we can process it with others. How many of you are verbal processors? Likely one of you just got nudged by your spouse. Here's what verbal processors are. Something happens in your life and you've got to talk about it. You have to share it and that's how you process things. Again, not bad. Getting others to help is good. Inviting them into the process is a good thing. But here's what i think happens too often galatians in the book of galatians it says we should carry one another's burdens it doesn't say we should carry one another's sadness there's a difference and i don't think we understand the difference clear enough so let me clear it up carrying one another's burdens at a time of sadness means i can come bring you a meal to help during your burden I can pray for you while you're going through some sad situation, which is what Jesus does with his disciples. Hey, come along, pray for me while I'm sad and watch. He's asking them to spiritually help. He doesn't ask them, carry my sadness. We cannot carry one another's sadness. I'm going to say that again. You cannot carry or expect another person to carry your sadness. You are the one who lived through the event. You're closest to it. You're the one who has the emotion. But have you ever met someone who tries to take their sadness and put it on you? It doesn't work. People can help you carry the burden. They can help you spiritually, but there's a better way. The third way to process sadness is what Jesus does ultimately and processes it before God. In verse 39 of our text, it says, going a little further, he, Jesus, fell to his face to the ground and prayed. That is a big posture change. You can write this down. Jesus processed his sadness face down before God. He processed his sadness face down before God. We can't outthink or overshare our way out of sadness. And I think the posture, maybe it's just for me, but I think it's probably for all of us. The posture that Jesus took, the physical posture, makes so much sense to me. Because I'm a guy who likes to think about problems, or share problems, or overshare. And the way I think about this is my brain's at the top of my head, so many times that's what I lead with. Or, right, I lean out and I start sharing about something. But it's really not until, for me, for us, that we recognize that I need to get my head and my mouth in line with the living God in my heart, that we figure out that the best place to process sadness is before God. Many times, and I'm trying to do this more in my own life, face down before God. That posture change is a, is a posture of submission. My, I can't outthink it, I can't overshare it, let me get my heart in line with the rest of my body. Does that make sense? I heard no yeses, so we might have to loop back around. Jesus is face down before the Father at his deepest time of grief. And he prays. What does he pray? He could pray anything. Like literally, he could pray the greatest prayer. And what does he pray? He, He prays a raw prayer sandwich. It's a weird way to... Think about this, but not only does Jesus change his posture physically, but he prays a great prayer. Look at this My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as your will. Do you notice that even though he could pray anything, he prays the Our Father prayer? In Matthew 6, he's teaching a whole bunch of people to pray early in his ministry, and Jesus says, This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus can pray anything. He prays the Lord's prayer, and in between it, he inserts this raw ask. If it's possible, can you take this cup from me? One commentator said, if Christ could plead as boldly as he did, we we should feel free also to unload our deepest desires before God. We should take those raw things that are happening in our life and submit them in the middle of a great prayer. God, you're amazing, but I need direction in my life. Yet not as I will, but your will be done. God, there's sickness around me but uh, that I don't understand. Your God. And so I pray that you heal that sickness. But if it doesn't get healed today, God, then teach me. Your will be done. So that's what Jesus prays. And we get inside again, which I think is amazing. Jesus gets up. How frustrating would it be? You're, you're praying this raw prayer. You get up. You look, and your friends are sleeping. But he turns around, and he prays, and he switches. He changes the posture of his prayer. Not just his physical posture, but his posture. Look at this, verse 42. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. He's come to know that it's not in the father's will to stop what's about to happen. So what does he do? He relinquishes control of the situation and puts his trust in God. He changes his prayer posture. You can write this down. Jesus adjusted his prayer posture towards God's will. I don't know about you, but in times, they're not going amazing. And when I'm praying to God, frequently I want my will to be God's will. Do you do this? Like, okay, Lord, this is not going amazing, and I have a list of ideas, God, that I'd like you to do. And I'll even, God, give you some scripture around it. We, we I, can come before the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I'd really like for you to do, and it's just not how it works. It's, It's fine that we pray that way, and God can supernaturally, I've seen it, God can supernaturally in the middle of those prayers step in and do something absolutely amazing, but other times we have to wait and and when I've waited in my life during those prayer seasons, what I've found is there's things that God does that I would never have asked or imagined on the other side of a prayer. We have to relinquish control of our desires to the desires of God, which is what Jesus did. Jesus' heart-wrenching sadness led to a posture change physically and with his prayer. Here's the other thing that I see Jesus processing his sadness. Jesus' heart-wrenching sadness wasn't the end of the story. You can write that down. It wasn't the end of the story. The story doesn't end with Jesus in the garden, stuck. Jesus, because he knows what lies ahead, doesn't decide to run away and hide. I'm stating the obvious, right? It's one thing to change your posture down before God, even change your prayer posture, but you still have to decide to walk this thing out. Let me give you some examples from the beginning of the message. If you've got the Sunday scaries, you still have to decide to go to work on Monday or quit. I don't know that it's God's will in your life for every Sunday to have the scaries to the point of having anxiety and sadness for the rest of your life. There's a decision to, to walk it through, maybe even differently, or if you have relationship issues in your family or maybe even your marriage. And, and you've been processing it with God. God, how do I navigate this? There is the end of the story is not arguing and turmoil forever. There's opportunity to walk through it, maybe even a little differently. Running away, physically or emotionally, is not the answer. Maybe you've got uh, some diagnosis, some sickness that you're facing the answer is not running away you should pray pray the big prayers but there are times at which you need to go through the surgery the recovery the treatment even if it's hard Jesus is facing excruciating details of his death and what does he do Verse 45, he's prayed, he's gotten before God, he comes back and it says this, look, the hour has come, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He didn't say, rise, let us go and run away. He's seeing this thing through. In our race, this is probably... Not just me, but I've done this. When when things are in front of us we don't like and we try to process them the wrong ways, sometimes our desire is to run away or distract. I don't think when I run away or distract myself from the thing, whatever it is, I don't see God's best. There's something about seeing it through. You can write this down if we haven't written it down already. Jesus didn't run away, he saw it through. Jesus didn't run away. He saw it through. The reason he saw it through was you. He saw it through because he knew on the other side of that was God's plan that was so much better than he could have imagined in his human form. He saw it through because of the greatness of what God was going to do. As, as I was thinking about this uh, earlier this morning, I was thinking about the life of Paul in Scripture. We, we, we read about Paul in the book of Acts, and he's writing letters back and forth. But I, what caught me this morning is Paul went to a place called Philippi. And while he was there, he got beaten almost to the point of death and thrown in jail. I don't know about you, but if that were me, it'd be easy for me to get stuck on that. Like, I'd be sad. Beaten almost to death. I don't know that I'm leaving that place to go do more ministry for a bit. Yet, what we find—this is not on your handout. It's not a slide. I got to go to Philippians three thirteen. Philippians three thirteen. He's writing back. He continues the journey. He writes the church back and he says, "One thing I do: forget what's behind, strain towards what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize." which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So in the middle of struggle, getting beaten, doing ministry, what's he doing? I'm looking forward because that's where the goal is. I'm not getting stuck. We can even look at Psalm 23. Many of you know this psalm, but in the middle of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. It doesn't say, even though I'm in the darkest valley and I can give you every single detail about the valley and how sad it is. No, there's this implication that we're walking through the darkest valley. There's momentum. There's, God is calling us to the other side. And because I'm moving and because God's with me in the movement, I will fear no evil. When I avoid the situation, it rarely feels like God's in it. When I am stuck and I can give you the intimate details of the sadness, as I peel apart the sadness onion, it doesn't many times feel like God's in that. But when I can, in the difficulty, stand up and begin to move through it, that's when God's promises light up. going to end with a a story. A story is about Tina Filson. Uh, This is a picture of Tina. Tina uh, volunteers uh, several places here at the church. She's a current student in the School of Ministry. And I've gotten to know Tina uh, fairly well this year. She's been in the School of Ministry. And she's got a a unique story. I actually called her yesterday to get the details right. Uh, But Uh, When I was talking with Tina, she told me about this last June when her mom passed away. I can sort of relate because my mom passed away a few years ago. It It was a sad situation. But in Tina's life, what happened in June, this is, I was typing as she was talking. This is how she dealt with her mom's passing. Tina says she didn't deal with it well. She had deep sadness, didn't depend on anyone, didn't talk to anyone, didn't tell anyone at church, processed it entirely alone and went into a state of depression for weeks. Not a good season. And then advanced, that was in June, advanced to December of this year. She was in school of ministry and her husband passes away. Her husband had a long-term illness but in that moment on top of grieving for her mom her husband passes and tina because i know how she processed that she shared it this way she said that she realized that she couldn't repeat processing the loss the same way and she knew that god was more relevant than ever before in her life and instead of staying home and processing it herself, and risking deep depression, Tina decided the day that her husband passed away to come to the school of ministry and come to class. Now, some of you might think, boy, that's weird. Not sure if you could do that. I get it, but I know Tina. And Tina knew, because she's communicated this to me before, Tina knew that God would show up as she moved through this process of her husband passing. Yet, she also knew that if she got stuck, that wasn't the greatest place to be. It wasn't the end of the story for Tina, and she knew that. If we go back to Jesus, Jesus knew, even though he was on a cross, dying. He even said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? even though it felt like he had this distance between him and God, he knew that that was not the end of the story. There was something greater on the other side of it. You can write this down. God's best often comes when we continue the journey. Best what? Best joy, best comfort, best fruits of the spirit, patience, love, yet if we stop short of the rest of the story, I'm convinced we will not get the fullness that God promises us. So your sadness, your friend's sadness, it's not the end of the story. It was not the end of Jesus' story, and it's not the end of ours. Jesus' heart-wrenching sadness as a review led to a posture change and was not the end of the story. Why don't you stand? We're going to move into a time of prayer.